Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Klondike Gold Rush has been immortalized in popular works like Jack London's The Call of the Wild or Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush. The word Klondike itself has connotations of wealth, with many people thinking about the short burst of activity between 1896 and 1899 over the river it was named for. It's obvious why more than 100,000 people fled north after news of the find, but what did they find waiting there for them, and how many got what they wanted? Let's begin. Here on HI 101 with Chris Martin. Hello, hello. Welcome, Chris. It's your first episode. It is. It is. It's a uh, pleasure to be here. I'm really excited to have you here. I've been wanting to uh, find a reason to get you on the show for a while now. So uh, it's uh, it's really exciting to have you. And yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, apologies. <laughs> no, no. It's okay. It's okay. This is that's how this show goes, man. It's uh, it's freeform. It's jazz. And uh, yeah, today we're going to be talking about the uh, the Klondike Gold Rush. This is a topic I've kind of been vaguely curious about for a long time, but like not enough to look into it. And the more I dug in, the more interesting it became. So I'm, I'm really excited to talk to, the, to you about this one today. I'm very excited to learn. Thank you. And I just wanted to quickly say it's not only my first time like on your podcast, but just generally. I have never done a recorded podcast before. So it's kind of a whole new experience for me and uh, appreciate it. Oh, amazing. I'm I'm glad I could uh, I could be the one to uh, to help you through your first one. That's great. Um, yeah. So I've been running into a couple of topics lately. Um, the most recent one actually being the, the last episode on the, the naval arms race leading up to World War One, where the more I look into it, the more it's just like it feels very, very germane to modern or current events. And I swear that's not necessarily like intentional. Occasionally people will like occasionally stuff comes up in terms of like, oh, history shouldn't try and predict current events. We shouldn't look. And that's that's really not what history tries to do. Right. And yet, every once in a while, a topic comes up where it's like, it definitely feels very, very relevant to things that are happening now. And just kind of keep that in mind as we go through, uh, because there's a lot of there's a lot of parallels to the modern day and, and stuff going on now. Of course, that doesn't mean it's predictive in any way, but it does sort of, it's food for thought, you know, as we go through. Um, it's always interesting when one of those comes up. When one of those comes up. Awesome. That's really cool. Yeah, it's neat when um, something like this happens where you can kind of draw parallels. And I appreciate your framing there in the way you can use history to maybe bring lessons out of something without necessarily calling it a predictor. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk uh, gold because that's the heart of all of this, right? Mm -hmm. 
And it's interesting because gold is something that we sort of culturally understand as just sort of inherently valuable, right? But there's a lot of stuff that kind of goes into the value of gold as a material or as like something that our uh, society uses as a demarcation of wealth, right? Because generally in history, it's been considered valuable, but that's not universally true. Um, there's actually things about gold that make it kind of a poor material, depending on your circumstances. It's really soft. Like you can't build tools out of it necessarily. And realistically, it's rarity, like basing value on rarity kind of depends on like how large the market is that you're working in, whether or not market value is really a thing at all. And so even though lots of places in the world, you have, um, sort of centuries or even more than a thousand years places that the uh, the most obvious places to dig for gold have been kind of picked over over time and it becomes harder and harder to extract value from those places you do kind of get into this this situation where in the 19th century um there are certain places left in the world where gold has just like not been valued by the people who live in those places and so there's this sort of um, frontier spirit kind of thing that comes into it, right? There's this idea that like there are still corners of the world where gold is just sitting there on the surface to be taken. Mm. Um, these these places, these exceptions, um, are they, they tend to fall into at least one of two categories. Either it's really only been accessible to cultures who don't necessarily value gold uh, for whatever reason. Um, or they're geographically remote or underdeveloped. And in a lot of cases, both. Okay. Interesting. Because when you look at places that it's historically mined, for example, uh, Spain um, was very rich in gold mines. Um, and the Romans got all of it like 17, 1800 years ago. Or at least anything that's easy to get to and stuff that's harder to get to, you know, those mines had been bought out, amalgamated by larger mining concerns, uh, you know, uh, deep mining that involves like cutting shafts and many, many miners working on it to pull gold out of deep from under the earth. Those things are not the sort of thing that an individual can undertake, right? Like it takes a lot of startup capital. There's a really simple uh, equation happening there where if it costs X amount of uh, X amount per day to run a mine, you need to be extracting at least that much value out of it, or it's just simply not worth getting it, even if it's there. Right. Enter the 19th century, sort of like peak British empire, right? There's all of these places that they're sort of trying to, uh, you know, in their sense of things, tame. And it's sort of opening up new new areas that that previously um, were not necessarily accessible to Europeans, and you get this series of smaller and then larger gold rushes as you go through the 19th century, and these are places where like a an individual person or or a small number of people could go and just find gold relatively accessibly. Starts off with you know Australia in the 1850s. There's a bunch of smaller uh, rushes with uh, large ones around uh, New South Wales and Victoria, so like the southeast of uh, the island. So that's where you've got, you know, uh, Sydney. That's where you've got um, like the 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 larger cities on the on the southeast, right? There are a couple of uh, smaller rushes to the west too. That's where you get um, Perth and other you know western cities in Australia uh, popping up. 
But each time there's this rush, somebody finds gold somewhere. The way it sort of plays out is that a couple of people go there um, to try and strike it rich, dig out as much gold as possible, and then it would be accompanied by this influx of European settlers who are trying to piggyback on top of that rush, right? They want to get a piece as well. And, you know, they would get there after the easiest stuff had already been picked up, right? And often would find themselves falling into sort of ancillary roles. So maybe they would work as a miner for somebody else who has productive land, even though they can't claim their own. Or maybe they would look at farming. Maybe they would look at uh, running a business to support the, uh, the new population that's popped up. And what follows after that is massive investment uh, in first the mining concerns. And then so like private investment and then uh, government investment in developing infrastructure. So, you know, it's great if you have uh, gold sitting there, you know, way far into the, the continent. Um, but if you can't get it out easily, it is more expensive to mine, right? Like anything that you put between getting the gold out to uh, international banks is just making that gold less expensive. So it's in the government's uh, interest to, for example, develop roads, develop rail, um, you know, develop a banking system. And all of a sudden you have a little colony just sort of popping up in this area. Wow. Yeah. It, yeah. it really follows the gold. Once, once gold is found, colonies follow very, very quickly. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. There are a couple of other rushes in uh, New Zealand as well. Again, much smaller, but you get a similar pattern. 1880s, you have a rush in South Africa. Uh, the city of Johannesburg is actually founded as a gold boomtown. It shows up out of nowhere in the 1880s around gold mines that are found in South Africa. That's incredible. I, I apologize. I had no idea that that's such a driver of uh, sort of the creation of colonies. Like I didn't realize that it would create the whole colony around it. Yeah, basically, like most of the Commonwealth um, that like as it exists today, so former British colonies, most of it is being driven by some sort of resource extraction, right? And while some of that is uh, more agricultural based, so like think you know sugar colonies and things like that in the in the Caribbean. A lot of a lot of more remote, like further north or further south places, are being driven by by gold. Interesting. So yeah, Johannesburg pops out of no up, up out of nowhere. This creates significant tension between the British settlers there and the Boers, so the uh, the formerly Dutch uh, settlers in the area, uh, as well as uh, indigenous tribes. Like a lot of the problems that come up in South Africa result from this uh, these mining concerns. And obviously, with South Africa, it's not just gold; it's also diamonds and other uh, other precious minerals. But the, the the gold rush there is is really significant. Um, within about ten years or so of the start of that, South Africa is producing about twenty to twenty five percent of the world's gold output year over year. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, really big deal there. And then, obviously, we can't really talk about gold rush without talking about California. It's kind of the standard for what we think of for a gold rush, right? It's kind of the one that sticks out maybe the most in, in popular culture or in our in our popular conception of what a gold rush looks like. And there's a reason for that. There was a lot of gold found in California. But it's one of those situations where the fact that it happened and the time that it happened, all of that 
like it's not really a coincidence. It sits in this larger context of California had just become an American holding. It wasn't even actually a territory yet. So you get the Mexican-American War happening and it ends in 1848. Um, This is basically entirely an expansion war. President Polk had basically promised expansion into Mexico just for the sake of gaining more American territory. This is very like peak manifest destiny, right? Seriously. And so Texas is occupied already, but like California is occupied sooner. And with the course of the war in 1848, it's sort of obvious that it's going to go in the favor of the United States, but it's not actually finished yet. And so California is in this weird spot in 1848 where it's occupied by the American military and everyone understands that it's going to become U.S. territory, but it's not actually governed by any U.S. laws. And any Mexican laws that stood before this are basically null and void. So it's in this limbo place where, like, anything goes. Hmm. And this is really attractive for lots of different types of people, but especially people who are looking to sort of start over, uh, make a fortune, all of that stuff, like the kind of stereotype of the the 49er, right? Like they're, they're called 49ers because the 1849 is when the, the gold rush kind of hits peak. But this idea of the, the California prospector moving out to the, the final Western frontier and, and establishing a homestead and striking it rich and all of this, the, the independence that goes along with all of that. Right. The, the reason for that is because there is no law in California in 1848. And and that's not like a like a an exaggeration or something saying that it's it's relatively no there's literally nothing there, literally no law, wow. So people would just show up and start looking for gold because around the same time gold is found in in California and the interesting about thing about the the gold in California is that it's spread over a very large territory, which means that any one person can only work so much of it. And each person that's working it can expect to find some gold, but maybe not like a massive fortune per, you know, staked territory, right? So you have a relatively good chance moving out there and picking, you know, a somewhat educated uh, uh, guess at where gold might be. You have a pretty good chance of finding some. Wow. I can absolutely see what is uh, so attractive about that. And, you know, as you explain it to me from a factual historical perspective, I'm seeing all the old movies and stuff we grew up watching, right? When Westerns were still kind of kicking around in the late 80s and 90s. And uh, they, you know, they glorified it, of course, but it really, uh, that, that side of it was kind of the truth, wasn't it? It was extremely attractive to people who wanted to start over and uh, also possibly uh, led to some shenanigans and hijinks happening as well, didn't it? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> when 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 California, like when we start this story, like 1846 or so, there's maybe about 15,000 Europeans in California. California is not a small state. It's, it's very, very large. It's a huge uh, stretch of land, but there's only about 15,000 people of European descent there. Um, probably th- there's estimates of around 150,000 indigenous people living in the area of, of uh, various groups. Between 1846 and about 1855 or so, the population of California grows to over 300,000. So 
it's it's significant like it's very very fast it's very rapid it's a lot of people moving into that area san francisco in 1846 uh, had a population of 200 people uh, by 1852 grew to 36,000 and by 1870 we're talking 150,000 they're like how does that even happen that's unprecedented to think about in in modern times yeah it's a it's a massive population explosion it really really is and i mean as more people move into the area like it, it, these these things tend to follow similar patterns right people move out into the area the earliest ones find the easiest to find riches not necessarily the most but it's the stuff that's most apparent and then as people follow behind it puts pressure on the whole concept of of california as gold country right because people are coming out and they're getting frustrated with the fact that they're not just finding gold like huge nuggets of gold sitting there right and so they start pushing into territory that's already occupied by indigenous people there are uh you know conflicts between uh indigenous people and uh, and americans uh this actually ends up resulting in what's known as the california genocide we go from about 150,000 indigenous in uh, in 1840s, 1850s, to about uh, population as low as about 30,000 uh, by 1870. So an 80% decline. That is shocking. And a lot of that is disease, um, which is kind of the the common story with these sort of population migrations. But a lot of it is also direct violence between migrants and the indigenous population like that's it's into right. the it's into the thousands of people who are who are directly murdered and you know a lot of that is just a matter of them seeing these stakes as being their own land and uh, it turns out that's actually traditional hunting ground or that's you know actually someone's current territory and it's it's mm-hmm. you know it's, it's a sense of entitlement that leads to this sort of thing and it's it's really quite tragic so yeah, these 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 rushes are all kind of predicated on a little bit of that uh, violence, both towards indigenous people and towards the the environment in general, right? Like it's it's right. uh, it's it's extremely devastating to the to the landscape. So, you know, the the trade off here is something like one hundred and twenty thousand people uh, dead and uh, about ten billion dollars worth of gold extracted. Um, wow. But California is the new West and, uh, you know, in about two years, it's made into a state, which is a, an incredibly fast timeline uh, at this point in time in the United States. It usually takes much longer to, to achieve statehood. Um, you know, int- infrastructure has developed really, really rapidly. First to get people West on, on trails and then railroad uh, ports are developed for trade. I mean, you know, and a lot of that stuff makes a lot of sense because anyone who doesn't find gold is going to settle in and they're going to start farming. The thing that helps drive the California gold rush is that California is a beautiful place. <laughs> like if you're looking for a place to start fresh, it's it's a good choice. But, you know, by the time you get to about 1855 or so, most people have moved into uh, business or farming or something like that. And really mining concerns need to be like a mid to large size to make any profit off of resource extraction. Right. So it changes quite quickly then, doesn't it? Yeah. These things are always over quickly. Like it's usually right. a, a course of a few years. Um, to be honest, the, the California rushes is, is one of the longer ones. Wow. Wow. So 
when we're talking about prospecting in this era, and and like I'm not really interested in like the larger mining concerns. That's not all that interesting to me. Um, when we're talking about like a guy going out to you know try his luck against the land, really the main method we're talking about here is like panning for gold. So like again, those old movies like guy standing in water up to his uh, up to his ankles, swishing the water and the the grit around in his pan. Right. Um, this is the easiest way to tell if there's gold in a general area. It's also just the easiest way for one person to uh, extract gold from from a certain area. So gold is um, like this. This is a really obvious thing to say, but gold is really dense, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's much more dense than most materials. It's something like uh, eight times denser than the general like sand that you're going to find uh, on a on a creek bed. It's about 20 times more dense than water. So just kind of taking it and swishing it around in some water is enough to make all of the gold settle to the bottom of a pan really easily. Hmm. And so with just like a little bit of practice, just swirling it around that pan, there's little grooves in the, in the bottom of the pan. Um, just that like swirling motion will cause gold dust to collect uh, in those grooves uh, while the water washes away the rest of the grit and you're left with only the, the flecks of gold at the very, very bottom. A skilled prospector, somebody who's been doing this a while, who really knows what they're doing, they've got their rhythm down, they can process about a cubic yard of material per day. It's a it's a pretty decent amount, all things considered. Yeah, so when you say a cubic yard of material, you're you mean like all of the dirt that's passing through their their little pan? Is yeah. that included in that? Okay. okay. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Um, so you have to do it where there's water, but that also makes sense because generally gold follows water when you're finding gold in like in the world right uh it's generally uh forced up out through the earth's crust um in in big veins but that's really really far down below the surface and those veins tend to more or less follow where there are or where there were creek beds because that's the lowest point meaning that that's where the 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 bedrock sinks down the lowest right it's just the the easiest place for the the water to run um, but when you're just prospecting, it's, it, it's something called placer mining. Um, and what it's, what, what you're trying to do is basically go like, well, I have no idea where under all this dirt, there might be a, a vein of gold. But when you're working out of a Creek in a, in a mountainous area, there's probably been gold forced up somewhere and little bits of gold get, uh, sort of eroded away and they'll, uh, They'll flow down with the creek. So when you're when you're prospecting, what you're looking for is essentially a place where a lot of gold has, at some point in in the ancient past, flowed down from the mountains and collected in a certain area. Gotcha. So you kind of go around, you try and find a place where you can find a lot of this gold in one in one area, and then if you find enough to make it worth your while, you might want to start upping your operation a little bit so when we're talking about you know like what are you going to be making like how much money are you going to be making here in california a lot of like when we're talking about height of the gold rush somebody uh working a pan could be finding between 40 and 80 cents worth of gold uh per pan for a basic approximate for conversion rates here we're talking about 30 times or, or multiply that value by about 30 times to get modern values. It's not perfect, but it's uh, it's a good enough 
um, approximation for us to use. So, you know, you could be looking at uh, making about uh, $2.40 every time you switch the pan around, which is not, or sorry, hang on, 80 cents? Sorry, $24, my mistake. I'm a history major, not, not math. Um, but yeah, $24 each time you swirl this thing around. Um, and that was considered extremely good money. So it's just something to keep in mind. Oh. Wow, that's excellent. And like you said, you you combine that wealth with, uh, you know, California, like when you're speaking specifically about California, it's again, it's no wonder so many people were drawn to go out there and, and really uh, drive that population explosion. Oh, 100%. Yeah, actually, there's accounts of people who essentially use the gold as an excuse to be going out there, when in reality, they were just looking for a new place to to live, essentially. Um, right. But it was almost more societally acceptable to say I'm going to try and strike it rich than it was to say, look, I would like a farm over there, please, rather than here, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. So, okay, you find a good spot. There's lots of gold here, but uh, one cubic yard per day just isn't doing it for you. You want to churn through this stuff a little bit faster, right? The next thing you would want to look at building is something called a rocker box. And this is... Uh, it's actually going to look a lot like a cradle sort of thing. So it's about four feet by two feet, a big wooden box. And it would be mounted on two curved uh, rockers, kind of like a rocking chair, right? And what you would have is that uh, at the top, you would have, um, well, throughout this whole box, you would have a, a series of screens um, that get smaller and smaller so that what you would do is dump a shovel full of this stuff uh, of silt into the top of the box and then you rock it back and forth and it uh, filters out uh, smaller and smaller um, sizes of uh, material until it gets to like a very fine uh, sand right and so what that does is helps you very quickly identify any larger nuggets of gold and anything that's not to clear it out uh, immediately. Right. And how difficult would that have been for the average laborer back then to build? Uh, it's not difficult to build. You could, uh, as long as you know how to do it, like how to put it together, um, what you're going for, you could probably figure out how to build one of those in a, in a day or so. Um, the, the hardest thing is getting the screen right, essentially. Like that's the thing that's, that's, uh, like you would want a metal material rather than wood. The wood's just laying around, essentially. Uh, the screen itself is, is going to cost you a little bit of money in terms of um, upfront costs. Right, right. And then at the very bottom of this box, you're going to have a, a sort of a spout at one side where where the water can run out of all of this. Because remember, you're, sh you're shoveling it from like a creek bed. So it's full of water, which you want because it helps, you know, kind of clean everything out. But you do need water to run out the bottom. And on the very bottom layer, you're going to put down uh, a bit of essentially carpeting. And the idea there is that any flecks of gold, like any really small gold dust, is going to collect in that carpeting as the water all runs out the one side. Right. And that's going to about quadruple the amount of silt that you can go through. So mm. one person can do three or four yards a day uh, using a rocker box. That's excellent uh, return on investment. Yeah, for sure. It's just one of those things that like, it's it's about mobility, essentially. Like if you don't know where there is gold and you're hunting for it, the pan is the way to go because all you have to carry is a pan. Right. Um, you really only want to build one of those once you've staked a claim. Okay. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And then finally, you've got something called a sluice box. And that is essentially how best to describe it. It's like a it's like a long metal channel uh, with tiers to it. So it's it almost looks like steps. Um, it'd be maybe, oh, a foot or a foot and a half wide. Uh, and then what you'd want is between six, 10 feet long. So you'd want to be able to dump a bunch of water and silt into the top and then just let water run through this thing, almost like a water slide. And right. if you've got the angle set right, the steps of it uh, tilt very slightly backwards so that anything that's light, like sand or even rocks, are going to continue down the, uh, the sluice box and shoot out the bottom. But anything heavier, like gold, is going to roll towards the back. Right. So the advantage there is that you can go through way more, like a lot more. A few people can be working this at a time, and you can churn through a lot more material. Uh, the catch is that you might you might catch 40% of the gold. Okay. So this is all about volume. Some guys would then pan whatever came off the bottom of a sluice box, but generally that wasn't seen as like worthwhile. Like you're not going to make enough off of doing that to bother catching whatever isn't going off the end. Okay, right, right. So most of these methods are pretty like do-it-yourself, right? Two or three people can work a pretty decent-sized claim, and if there is anything to be found in a couple of seasons, like one or two seasons, you can do a stretch of creek and pretty much pick it over. Hmm. Yeah, but the the thing is, you're only going to get whatever is near to the surface, right? So that's where the whole like cycle comes in: of individuals come in, stake claims, few get rich, and eventually people. Uh, sell off their stakes to bigger mining companies who have the capital and the equipment and the manpower to come in and uh, uh, dig deeper and find the, the the richer veins. Yeah, makes sense. So water, you'll notice, is an absolute necessity in all of these processes. Uh, you need it to wash off uh, or, or to separate whatever it is that you're working with. Yes. Yeah, sounds like it. And uh, so especially for the, the common person, how how did that knowledge spread, you know, in, in just a couple of years to get that many people uh, to come out? Because I recognize, you know, they couldn't exactly just like book a flight. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the methods uh, that they're using are not new. Panning for gold is hundreds of years old at this point. Like that's that's how people have been prospecting for sure. for a really, really long time. So that's. Um, you know, to, to say common knowledge feels like a little bit of a cop out, but it wouldn't be hard to, to find out from others. Like anyone who has a little bit of knowledge about mining would know how to pan for gold. A lot of people will actually do this as a hobby and, and did it at that time too. But even now people will just sort of pan for gold as a, as a fun thing to do. They're never going to make any money, but it's, it's sort of interesting and, I don't know. People with hobbies have they find they find ways to pass the time, right? So it wouldn't be yeah. like a, a difficult thing to to learn how to properly pan. Um, then, as far as uh, how people knew about the the gold in California and to go out there, um, the newspapers. It was it was uh, massive news that uh, gold has been found in in California and men are becoming rich and. 
you know, uh, it's always, you know, kind of blown out of proportion, but they're, they're talking about how, uh, how easy it is to find out there. And, and a lot of this is wrapped up in, remember the, uh, the psychology of expansionism, right? There's already the sense that they deserve that land as part of manifest destiny. And it's almost as if they're being rewarded for their expansionism. Like it seems like providence almost, right? Yeah. If anything, it's sort of a justification. Well, yeah, we should have this land because as you can see, even people who say, say that it was theirs before us weren't using it properly because look, the gold is just sitting there. And if they were proper stewards of it, they would have understood to to collect that gold and to, to become rich. Right. Which is obviously kind of kind of twisted logic, and it's a it's a it's a really kind of alien way of looking at this the whole situation. Like it's just it's just mineral extraction, but um, you know it's there, there's so much of that myth of expansion in the air, and the newspapers take that and run with it. It's right right like right. it's not just that they've managed to defeat Mexico; it's also that they've added this land and look how rich it is, look how abundant it is. And that captures people's imaginations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great explanation. Appreciate it. Yeah, of course. All right, so that's that's California, and that is sort of the the one that people tend to to think of, or one of the two that people tend to think of the most. But let's talk about uh, the Canadian North in the eighteen nineties. Yeah, because the the Klondike Gold Rush does not happen in a vacuum any more than the California one did, right? Like there is a there is a set of of circumstances surrounding it that that sort of informs a lot of what's happening here, right? Right. Uh, the number one being Confederation in 1867, British North America Act uh, makes uh, Canada a somewhat independent nation. Um, there's, that's, we, we can leave it there. It's a little more complicated than that, but you know, Canada is founded. Um, the same year that Confederation happens, 1867, uh, the territory of Alaska is purchased by the United States from Russia. Right. It was, it, it was originally a Russian colony. So this is immediately kind of looked at sideways by Canadian officials, right? Because right. up until now, they've stayed south of the border and all of a sudden here they are picking up uh, huge swaths of land north of, of Canada. And there's this concern that all this Manifest Destiny stuff might be a little bit out of control. Interesting. Especially after the War of 1812, um, there's just this underlying concern, right, in the 19th century that the United States doesn't just want, like, coast-to-coast -coast North America, east and west. Like, it seems like they want to go north, too. And it, it makes Canada a little bit defensive. They're, they're worried that they're going to lose out on some sort of territory. Right. The other thing to keep in mind is that Canada is founded by a bunch of people who um, are both politicians and uh, have vested interests in the rail industry. So a lot of the talk of like from from sea to sea uh, in very, very early Canada is both political rhetoric and a way of our early politicians furthering their own business interests. Wow. Of course. Of course it is. <laughs> it's not that surprising, is it? No, it's not. It's like, oh man, I've heard this before, yeah. even though this is new information. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's for real. Um, there, there's this, there's this sense that like, 
oh, we have to, you know, we have to extend the rail line out to BC. You know, British Columbia is refusing to join Confederation uh, until uh, there's at least a promise of rail all the way out to British Columbia. It's a it's a separate British colony at this point in time. By the way, um, British Columbia. Do you have any idea why British Columbia was founded as an independent colony? No, I don't think so. And if I did once know it, it has definitely left my brain. Well, in 1858, in the Fraser Canyon, uh, gold was found. Okay. Now, not a lot of gold, not compared to some of these other rushes, but enough that a bunch of people head west. A bunch of people stake claims. The government decides to split it off as its own administrative uh, zone because it becomes really hard for uh, the British Parliament to administrate from from London. So they decide to make it its own colony. I mean, that's it, there. There are other factors involved here, but there's there's a gold rush just before it's uh, before it's founded. This is wild, blowing my mind. I know, it's really interesting cool. stuff. Yeah. So, Alaska's just been purchased, 1867. Uh, Canada's a little bit concerned about this, but more importantly, like Britain is concerned about this as well. There is some sort of like the, the the relationship between Britain and the United States at this point is kind of hot and cold, right? Like we're fifty years out from the from the uh, War of eighteen twelve, and it's not like they're still upset about it. But Britain sort of sees Canada as a bit of a liability in that sense, right? It's uh, something that could potentially draw Britain back into war with the United States in the future. So right. by allowing confederation, it's basically putting Canada at a bit of arm's length where like, obviously there's still a relationship there, but it's not automatically war against Britain if they were to invade. That being said, the Alaska purchase is now threatening a monopoly that Britain has had since uh, the 1750s, which is access to the Canadian North. Right. And this is desirable to them specifically because they think they're going to be able to go prospect up there? Uh, desirable to the British or to the Americans? Sorry. Yeah, I think I misheard. I think I misheard that to the Americans. The Americans? So, the, yeah, the Americans, I think it was as much about being able to buy all of Alaska for $15 million. Like, it's a really good deal on a lot of land. Right. Um, was was a big chunk of the of the rationale there. It's also to control more territory on the Pacific coast. Um, it, yeah, when the, when all of this happens, there is a pretty significant eye towards expanding really far north and really far south for the United States, and Alaska was going to give them access to specifically fisheries and whaling. Uh, that they hadn't had uh, specific access to previously. So not gold specifically, but they are kind of looking at it with an eye towards resource extraction. Makes sense. So uh, yeah, again, more similarities between then and now, huh? Mm -hmm, for sure. The other thing to consider there is that there's something called the Monroe Doctrine, um, which essentially said that it was U.S. policy to prevent European powers from interfering in the Western Hemisphere. 
there's been different iterations of that over the years, but like that's the rationale between or behind like the Spanish American War. That's the rationale behind like it's 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 about creating like a sphere of influence, right? And okay. sometimes that's seen as sort of a passive thing, as sort of like a, a protector of the entire hemisphere. And sometimes it's seen as a very active thing, like you would see in, for example, interfering in uh, Central American politics, right? So it's had a lot of various uh, uh, iterations over the years. When Russian Alaska comes up for sale, it's an opportunity in certain American politicians' eyes to take more of the Western Hemisphere out of European control and put it into American control. Okay. So there is also like an ideological bent to the whole thing. Right. So Canada seeing this as a little bit of a threat, especially the same year they're confederated. They don't much like it. There's this big border dispute over um, where the border uh, lies between um, Alaska and British territory. Because remember, um, Canada, when it's confederated, is only Ontario, Quebec, uh, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick. And Ontario and Quebec are significantly smaller, right? Like they're mostly just the southern portions. The rest of the continent that's going to become Canada eventually is something that's known as the Northwestern Territory. Okay. And this incorporates uh, something that's called Rupert's Land, which is traditionally the uh, land that was um, controlled by the Hudson's Bay Company for the fur trade. Okay. And it's often said that like they owned it, but actually what happened was Britain gave them a an exclusive license to uh, trade in that area. So it's never been conquered, but when you look at a map, it's also marked as British territory. So I don't know, they kind of backed into that one a little bit. And then beyond that, there's the, uh, the Northwest territory that really no one had ever explicitly claimed, but because Britain controlled uh, the Hudson Bay, as well as the uh, what's called the British Arctic Territory, so the the far northern uh, islands up into the Arctic. Yep. Um, nobody else could really get to that territory anyway, so it was just sort of de facto considered British. Right. Interesting. Now, obviously, there are a lot of indigenous people who live in these lands, and and that's yeah. going to cause a lot of problems down the road. But when we get to uh, confederation this land is still more or less under direct control of the hudson bay company who are bleeding money fast and actually looking to get rid of rupert's land uh the fur okay. trade is no longer useful in 1870s um <laughs> the the bay the hudson bay company had tried other industries they had looked at logging they had looked at fishing um, a couple other extractive uh, industries, and it just wasn't working out. So they had actually considered at one point selling Rupert's land to the United States. Wow. But in 1870, uh, a deal is struck between the company, uh, Britain, and Canada. And there's basically a three-way uh, trade. It's, it's known as the deed of surrender, uh, officially, where Hudson Bay Company gives up their license they're no longer allowed exclusive access to these these lands, although they keep a little bit of land in the deal. And the territory is then incorporated into the new Dominion of Canada. Now, it's interesting because they never actually had title to the land, 
but now Canada is claiming it as their territory. Yeah, I can. Yeah, sorry. I feel like I say interesting a lot right now, but it's like, you know, this this is all stuff that I did not know about. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm immediately drawing parallels to sort of all of the things that I've learned about uh, treaty law, et cetera, over the past few years with, um, with and rightfully so, so much coverage of uh, different Indigenous struggles throughout our country. Yeah. I, I feel like we must be getting to that eventually. <laughs> we're, we're, we're right on top of it because you're absolutely okay. right. Uh, this results in problems in, in 1870 with uh, the colonies around Red River, which is uh, mainly Métis. And that whole thing is the Red River Rebellion of the of 1870, Louis Riel. I did a whole episode on that one one time, so I won't get too deep into it. But essentially, the province of Manitoba is made just around Winnipeg, like a very small area, uh, at the same time as the deed of surrender goes through to try and placate people who are, are upset about this whole arrangement, um, which... You know, it's not so much the, the the land transfer itself; it's the number of Canadian settlers who are moving out onto the prairies to try and stake land that these people rightfully see as as belonging to them. Right, right. This land treaty or this this land transfer, by the way, is enormous and for very very little money. So, uh, the company has paid three hundred thousand pounds at that point in time, which is not a lot of money, and. Like to, to put this in perspective, people talk about the the Louisiana Purchase a lot as being like, wow, they got a lot of land for not much money. Yep. This is about three to four times the size of the Louisiana Purchase for about one-fifteenth of the price. Not per acre, absolute. That is significant. Yeah, it's it's massive. BC has made a province in 1871, so they, they're now part of the, the Dominion as well. They get that assurance of the railroad coming out. Um, but all of this infrastructure that's being built in Canada is very close to the U.S. border, right? Like it's all fairly far south because the further far, uh, the further north you go in Canada, the the less hospitable hospitable it becomes. the The subarctic territory is not friendly place. Like it's not at all right. a friendly place. It's really difficult to survive there. Uh, as you mentioned, we're getting to treaty law stuff. So there's this document called the Royal Proclamation of 1763. And it's it's very, very old, but it's also still important to Canada. It's actually the way that the Seven Years' War ended. Okay. That's the that's the one where the French were defeated and driven off the 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 continent, right? And that's the one right. where it's it's uh, in in the US they sometimes call it the, the French and Indian War. Um, at the end of this war, there is a big line that's drawn essentially from uh, Nova Scotia to uh, the coast of Georgia on on the Gulf of Mexico, more or less along the uh, Appalachian Mountains. Okay. And the Royal Proclamation of 1763 guarantees indigenous title to all land west of that line, which is very close to the Atlantic, by the way guarantees indigenous title to all land west of that line unless explicitly given by treaty. Okay. That is good to know about then. Yeah, it's it's important stuff. Yeah. For the US, that's nullified by the the revolution. So that all goes away in 1776. In fact, it's it's one of the biggest factors in the American Revolution. They'll talk about the tea tax and the the stamp tax and all of that stuff. The fact that settlers can't move further west is one of the biggest uh, grievances that those settlers have with uh, the British crown. Yeah, it's a big deal. 
So the first seven numbered treaties in Canada uh, between 1871 and 1877 are all designed to open the West to British settlers. It's to get around this proclamation and allow people to build farms and, and settle their families out on the prairies. Again, I talked about these quite a bit in the uh, Red River Rebellion episode. Um, they're uh, extremely uh, one-sided. They're very unfair. Um, and Honestly, even a lot of the stuff that was agreed to in these treaties uh, under the Indian Act, uh, Canada doesn't really honor them anyways. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge mess and we don't need to get too deep into it. But the thing to know is that this first round of numbered treaties is much further south because it is almost exclusively places that they're hoping to eventually settle Canadians of European descent. The North is generally really sparsely populated, even by indigenous groups. Uh, Canada doesn't really consider it important for the treaties because it doesn't see people ever living there. And so by the 1890s, what you have in Canada is this big chunk of uh, what's known as the Northwest Territory. Um, what would become the prairie provinces and uh, northern Ontario, northern Quebec, things like that, that are uh, covered by these treaties with the expectation that someday people will live there. And then north of that, you have all of these areas not covered by treaties. Uh, nothing has ever been uh, negotiated with indigenous peoples where there is basically nothing going on as far as the government is concerned. It is unceded land. It is uncontrolled land. Uh, and in this area, it's really seen as like the last place in North America that has that frontier spirit. It's the last place somebody could go to disappear or start over. Okay. It's the last place where you can kind of just put down stakes and just say this is mine and not really have people contradict you in any way. Right. And the fact that it is, you know, as you just said, considerably less uh, nice than, let's say, by contrast, California, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's certainly going to be attractive, like you said, because that frontier spirit. But I'm, I'm guessing that it's not as nearly as manageable for the average person at that time to just start over the further north you get, right? Well, that's absolutely it. I mean, when you go to California, you can toss a handful of seeds at the ground and it's going to grow. Like it's 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 really hard to not make a decent living uh in certain parts of California. It's it's uh it's a it's an amazing place. What is going to become the Yukon? Not so much. The guys that were working up there and it is almost exclusively men. They are a different breed. They are hard bitten. They uh, they either learn how to survive or they die. This this place is unforgiving. Right. It's very cold. The sh the, the the summers are short. The summers are almost as bad as the winters because it's just mosquitoes for four months. Um, anything that's uh, anything that's that's thawed is probably more like a, a bog or a swamp than it is anything pleasant. So uh, a lot of these guys are waiting for the frost to set back in over the summer. Uh, it's right. mountainous. Uh, it's inaccessible, and you know you're not going to grow anything there. You're probably going to have to hunt for your food. Things like scurvy are a big problem because fresh vegetables are are not that easy to come by. 
Um, right. it's, it's a really, really hard life. It's a very hard life. And it's, it's not for everybody. This is not the same romance as California where people dream of going there. This is a, this is a place of last resort where people okay. who sort of just don't fit in anymore, be it for, uh, you know, criminal reasons, be it for like, for whatever reason it is, it is a place of last resort. You don't go there unless you have to. So by the time we get to 1896, uh, there's about a thousand prospectors working in uh, what we would call Yukon now, um, which is not many people. It's a it's a big big territory. Most of them are not terribly well off. Uh, there was a small rush uh, further south near the coast um, uh, about a decade before, but it hadn't really come to anything. It was just enough to draw people to the area with the with the the promise of gold, but nobody was, was really making any money. Okay. A lot of these guys would, uh, kind of find just enough, uh, to sell and not even necessarily gold. Sometimes we're talking about fishing enough salmon to sell, uh, dried to local merchants, basically for dog food, just to, just to pay for food and pay for, you know, the necessities to live and, and continue one more season, uh, all in right. the hopes of kind of going back and finding some more gold. A uh, really tough time. Sometimes if you had a lead on something or even thought you might have a lead on something, you could find somebody who would um, uh, who would pay for basically your supplies for the year um, as a loan. And so the idea is if you strike gold, you can pay back the couple hundred dollars and keep all of the profits. But if you don't strike gold, then you're out a couple hundred dollars which in that time is is a couple thousand dollars, right? Yep, for sure. It's it's a rough time. It's it's in this uh it's in this environment that in August of 1896, uh an American prospector, a guy named George Carmack is uh out prospecting. Uh he's there with his uh his wife who is uh Tagish. Uh she's indigenous. Uh he called her Kate uh cuz he couldn't uh pronounce her real name which was uh, Shawclaw, and they were there with her brother-in-law, or sorry, with her brother. Um, George would have called him Skookum Jim. Skookum is a, is a local word for uh, strong, but like more in like a sturdy sense than like a muscular sense. Uh, okay. He'd gotten the name when he had carried 260 pounds of bacon uh, from the coast to a, to a settlement. Um, he worked as a, yeah, he worked as as a porter just moving moving goods back and forth when he wasn't prospecting i can't believe i haven't heard of this guy on 2012 twitter talking about bacon jokes nonstop. honestly honestly <laughs> uh so yeah it's it's george it's his wife it's uh jim mason his real name is quiche but again they're all using english names because the english settlers refused to learn much taggish and uh then there's there's kate's nephew a guy named dawson charlie uh the four of them are out prospecting and jim spots gold in a small creek it's called uh they, they call it bonanza creek uh there had been a smaller discovery earlier that year a guy named henderson things are a little bit different with discoveries in the klondike than they had been in california if you found gold in california you kept it a secret you didn't tell anybody where the gold was it was very like every man for themselves right right in the klondike they had just because it was so difficult to survive, they had this miner's code. And basically, 
basically all that goes along with it is uh, number one, if you if somebody needs food, you give it to them. Uh, number two, you never steal someone else's food. You ask. And number three, you strike gold. You tell everyone who you come across where the gold is. Okay. So the first the first person gets to stake whatever claim that they want, and they get a double claim uh, for the privilege of being the ones to to find the gold. But the entire community gets to gets the news of where it is. The idea being that if one of us strikes it rich, all of us should have a shot. Yeah, I kind of love that. Yeah, it's good when it works. <laughs> yeah, you're telling me that type of thing might not work out logically between humans? Well, here's the thing. So this guy, Henderson, who strikes uh, a couple weeks before, he stakes a claim, this other place, uh, it's called Quartz Creek. And it's it's not bad. He pulls like a, a pretty decent pan. He's looking at, you know, 12, 16 cent pans. So it's nothing like the 40 or 80 cents that uh, that you were seeing in the California rush. But he's never made that much money in his entire life. Right. Right. So that's still a significant deal to him then. Absolutely. So he goes back to town like that's going to pay for his year, basically. Right. right. Uh, this claim that he's found. He goes back to town and he runs into uh, George Carmack. The guy that we were talking about with the yep. uh, indigenous wife. And here's the thing. He doesn't approve of George Carmack uh, fraternizing uh, with the locals. And he decides not to tell him about the claim. He decides to tell him maybe you should look further away. Dirty. Yeah. Henderson also refused to give Skookum Jim food when he was looking for it earlier that year. So he he is openly racist in his talk and actions. Then yeah, the right. oh, okay, oh, a hundred percent. And like the 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 open racism in this uh, in this era is not unusual. But I mean, even for the time, it was like 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 even for the time, he was bad. Like he made other racists uncomfortable. They're like, wow, dude, yeah, like that is maybe pushing it. Yeah, okay, so interesting. So yeah, different layers of it. Yeah. So Henderson goes off and he's working his Quartz Creek and getting a little bit of gold out of it. And uh, Carmack, his wife, his brother-in-law, the nephew, they go off, check out this Bonanza Creek. And Jim spots gold. It's enough that you can just see it visually. Like it's not like he had to pan for a while to get a couple of flex. There was just gold there. They pulled a $2.50 pan. That is significantly greater than uh, the racist guy, Henderson. Yeah, it sure is. And so when they went back to town, they told everybody, but they didn't tell Henderson. Now, did they know that Henderson hadn't told them and that's why they did it? Yes. Or, okay, okay. This was straight up retribution. This was, okay. this was tit for tat. <laughs> this is, yeah. Yeah, it is entirely because Henderson, he, he, he balked first. So. Right. When they claim this land, uh, Jim suggests that jo uh, George be the one to stake the original claim. The concern there was that, like, there, you know, there's local authorities here that are that are recording claims, right? Um, yep. The concern was that they were also relatively uh, racist against indigenous folk. The concern was that they would not allow uh, a taggish man to be the one to stake the the original claim on a find so they put george's name on it yeah 
he got his double. And then uh, when you find a good claim, you want stuff down river from it first because things flow down river, right? So there's the original claim, which is worth two claims. And then they take uh, one above for the nephew, uh, Dawson Charlie, and they take the one below for Skookum Jim. Okay. And then they go back to town and they tell everybody. And that whole stretch of Bonanza Creek gets staked out within a matter of a few days, maybe a couple weeks. And by the time Henderson hears about it, it's all staked. Oh, Henderson. I mean, I actually don't feel bad for him now that I remember he's a huge racist. It actually gets worse for him. Oh, no. Um, He didn't. He didn't he didn't register his claim on on Quartz Creek uh, fast enough. You have like 60 days to do it because he'd been uh, he'd fallen ill. And by the time he was better and went to claim it, it had been too long. And so it had it had lapsed and someone else was able to claim his claim. So he made a few dollars off the entire Klondike Gold Rush, even though he was one of the original uh, speculators. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I guess the story is don't be uh, uh, racist. I don't know. That That is one thing you can take <laughs> away from it. Sorry, I'm stuck on that bit. No. I recognize that the times were much different back then, I mean, uh, but it's, it's almost like, well... Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it, it feels like a bit of like a morality tale in a certain sense, right? Like he kind of got what he deserved a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the, the rush, it went fast. You know, once guys once guys started working these claims, they were pulling extremely large pans. The difference between the Klondike Gold Rush and the the California one, from like a geological perspective, is the Klondike is much more concentrated. It's extremely concentrated. Okay. The record that I saw for a single pan was somewhere over five hundred dollars. My gosh. So, you know, that's, that's sticking a, you know, those, those pans would be, oh, I don't know, 16, 18 inches across, something like that. Maybe a little bigger. You stick that in a, in a Creek, swirl it around for a little bit and, uh, come away with, uh, like $15,000, right? Like that is bonkers might, might even make it worth braving all the, uh, harsh terrain then. Right. Almost immediately after all of these claims are staked, there's like a secondary industry that pops up, which is land speculation. See, anyone can go out and stake a claim as long as you're, you know, a man over the age of 18. Right. But not everybody was cut out for necessarily mining it. And the thing about a big find like this is that statistically speaking, once you start mining the land, the value decreases because the idea of how much gold could be in there is probably worth more than how much gold is actually in there. Now that's not true on every parcel, but you know, generally speaking, if you're trying to play, like if you're trying to beat the house odds, staking a claim and then selling it to somebody else is probably going to make you more money than actually mining it. Interesting. So, so um, did that sort of become a cottage industry that pe- people really got into then? Oh yeah, people were people were playing with a lot of money, and like, there was there was some. He was he was thousands and thousands of dollars in debt because he kept buying like borrowing money to buy against claims, but banks would keep 
loaning him the money because he had claims in hand. And the idea was, well, he could dig that loan money out at any given time and he would just right. keep over leveraging more and more until he had seven, eight claims, something like that. Um, a claim, by the way, is 500 feet of Creek. Oh, okay. That's good to know. Yeah. It's not, it's not huge, right? Like it's, but the idea is that like one person can't really work much more than that on their own. So it's supposed to be like a, a like a non-greedy amount, basically. Like this is a reasonable amount for one person to expect to properly uh, uh, work over. Okay, it's just to hear that at some point in history there was a you could apply the term non-greedy when they were staking <laughs> land. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, like the idea of like land title and all that still gets pretty hairy, but we can we can right. leave that for now. Sure. Now, we talked about mining uh, techniques earlier, and this happens in August, so it is relatively warm, but there's, a, there's, a, there's an added difficulty to mining in the north, right? Which is permafrost. Oh, yeah. Yeah. See, the idea, once you found a rich enough claim, especially if you're pulling like five, ten dollar pans out of, the, out of the ground, is that it might actually be worth digging down to bedrock and seeing if you could find the, the vein. Trouble is warmest part of the summer you might get two three feet fod bedrock could be 50. Mm, wow so what these guys would do is dig down as far as they could until they hit frozen ground in a sort of like a like a four foot by eight foot area big enough for somebody to work right and then they would set a fire in there they would let that fire burn for the rest of the day uh, and it would melt another foot or two feet down. Then the next day they would dig all of that out. They'd put it all in a pile and they would, they would eventually like run this stuff through a sluice box or something like that, or maybe a rocker, uh, to try and get gold out. But like they're going for bedrock and they would get maybe a couple of feet per day burning their way into the ground. Wow. That is dedication. This isn't like digging into soil. Mm -hmm. because it's permafrost like it's not really ever settled the way soil does it's not hard because of like packed earth it's hard because it's all frozen right so it's extremely wet and soggy and what you're hitting more often than not is basically a mix of gravel and essentially peat so organic matter that's never really properly rotted because it froze before it could. Interesting. And that means that all this smoke that's coming off of these fires is extremely nauseous. Oh no. <laughs> well, I mean, imagine like a campfire and then throwing like like a good two handfuls of like moss on there and like how how good you can imagine that smells. Yeah. Yeah, that's what they're burning through. Right. Once like there was there's stories of them finding like mastodons and stuff like barely decayed 10 15 feet down in this stuff wow um yeah it's it's crazy when they would finally hit bedrock then they'd start uh tunneling across um perpendicular to the creek that they're working trying to find the vein and a lot of them never did but some of them eventually could and again they're not digging they're burning when it's cold, the cold air would kind of spill down in and keep it relatively fresh, but not like, not like good. And a lot of guys would pass out down there from the, from the fumes, like fairly often. Wow. That sounds uh, super dangerous. 
Like there's no way that is a thing you could do in a in long term. No. Is there like no. Yeah. No, it's real bad for you. Um okay. what's more, they didn't have to brace their tunnels at all because the permafrost would keep it braced. Like it was just frozen ground. Right. So most of the time the tunnels didn't collapse, although most occasionally of, most of the time. <laughs> You know? I was going to say, I don't know. I I, uh, I feel like, hey, you know, like we could brace this just to be on the safe side or we could not. And uh, maybe things will work out like, yeah. you know, <laughs> OK. Yeah. So um, for the first basically the first year of the Klondike Gold Rush, the outside world has no idea any of this is happening. And a bunch right. of original prospectors, guys who've been working up there for ages, carved out all the largest easiest to extract gold deposits and a lot of them became like fabulously wealthy extremely rich right and the rest of the world doesn't find out until in july of 1897 so the next summer a bunch of prospectors loaded down with gold caught a boat they, they hiked back to the coast finally caught a boat down to seattle washington uh, and made sure that there were bank guards there ready to meet them uh, yep. because the group was carrying over a million dollars in gold. A million dollars back then time? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Values are tough because like... I bet. It's like, well, there's, there's different ways that I've seen this valued. So the 1 to 30 thing is helpful for things like daily wages or how much you're paying for flour or something like that. But when you're talking about a value of like that much gold, uh, occasionally different standards are applied because it's more of like a commodity and it would scale closer yep. to more like GDP stuff than it would to like inflation stuff. Yep. Um, I've seen this boat valued at as close to a, as much as a, a billion dollars today. That is absolutely bonkers. Yeah. And uh, when the world when the world got word, they uh, they kind of lost it a little bit. So uh, why don't we why don't we take a quick break there, and when we come back, we'll talk about uh, the the gold rush itself starting in earnest. Can't wait. Back on HI one hundred one here with Chris Martin. Hello, hello. And so far, people have just kind of been quietly getting rich in more or less obscurity far far north uh, just below the arctic circle um that's all about to change uh with the the arrival of some of these early prospectors in in seattle carrying just way too much gold way, way too, too much, much gold, gold. <laughs> um before we really get into like the stampede itself though uh we need to again zoom out a little bit and look at some extenuating circumstances have you ever heard of the Panic of 1893? I don't think so. You're not alone in that. That's very, okay, very I common. Thought you, I thought you were going to be like, holy hell, have you, has this guy heard of anything here? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. No, it's weird because, see, the 1893 Panic uh, is really not talked about a whole lot. Most people are not terribly familiar with it, and yet... It is by far the worst economic recession the United States has ever gone through. And yes, I'm aware of the Great Depression. It is worse than the Great Depression. It has really complex causes. It has wide-ranging consequences. But like, 
in terms of our, you know, moment right now or, you know, for the past 12 years or so, all of that stuff, like some of this starts feeling really familiar at this point. The slump itself has like really complex causes. It, it gets super messy. But essentially what happens is the U.S. is on two different uh, currency standards at this point in time. There's a silver dollar and a gold dollar. And that's just like we're in a we're in a we're at a point in history where uh, currency is backed by like actual real gold reserves. This is the whole like gold bars at Fort Knox kind of thing. Okay. Cool. But because gold, hypothetically, a gold dollar and a silver dollar should be worth the same amount of money, but because of fluctuations in price on gold versus silver that's not necessarily like practically true so you get to this uh this situation where a bunch of new silver mines open in the united states and anytime a market is flooded with a commodity the price of that commodity goes down significantly right right so this is exacerbated by the fact that uh knowing that these mines are going to be opening uh, the most wealthy of uh, the U.S. society has made a concerted effort to corner the market on gold dollars, expecting them to drop in value a lot less. Oh, okay. Interesting. And these guys, this is happening at the same time as these guys are about to show up with this enormous amount of gold. Is that what I'm getting here? It's happening four years before they're, it's happening four years before they show up. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So, okay, price of silver crashes, right? This has an effect on international commodity pricing. So like trading silver with other nations, but also kind of spills out into like trading other things with other nations, right? Because if the value of the dollar drops, it becomes harder to buy things from other nations with it. This in turn leads to bank failures as banks are no longer able to adequately they have to like back up their own currencies, right? Like they have to have enough on hand to um, support any money that they give out. If someone was to come in with, so the idea is if somebody comes in with a dollar and it's a silver dollar, you should be able to go to the bank, hand it to them and receive $1 worth of silver in return. Right. Okay. So yep. when the price is uh, fluctuate so badly, a lot of these banks are no longer able to actually do that, which causes right. bank failure. This turns into a panic where people no longer trust the banks. If they've seen other banks fail, they're worried about their own. And so they start withdrawing their money from their own banks, which exacerbates yep. the problem further. Yep. Meanwhile, completely separately from all of this, the railway industry in the United States in the 1880s is experiencing i suppose what you could call a bubble they wouldn't have called it that, in that at that point in time but there are way too many railroad companies building way too much rail and a lot of people are invested in these companies and there's a lot of speculative value to them that's not actually being returned by any sort of product or service okay so generally when bubbles like that happen it takes some sort of outside pressure to uh, collapse them, but not much, right? A small uh, extenuating circumstance can be all it takes for like a cascading failure in that industry. Okay. 
And that's exactly what happens in the rail industry in the United States. A bunch of these companies fold and a lot of people lose a lot of money in their investments. And that must lead to a significant portion of people losing their jobs then working those railways or? That's correct. And and that yeah. spills out into other industries as well because okay. businesses are now overextended, right? They can't necessarily yep. get the credit they need for just regular operations because the bank may not exist anymore or they may have had their, uh, their actual um, like their money, their operating capital tied up in a bank that failed because I, sh I should clarify, when I say bank failure, I mean you go to the bank one day and say, well, I should have this much money in my bank account, and they say, sorry, we're closed. Like, Yeah, that's, it's, it, it's a hard concept to grasp, actually. It's gone. It's just gone. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and especially in Canada where we have a fairly regulated banking system compared to the U.S., like they've made improvements since then. Like To, to me, I don't know, the, the U.S. banking system seems uh, built on sand. <laughs> <laughs> but, great description but uh but you know it, it was it was worse than <laughs> um so yeah all these banks collapse all these businesses go under unemployment hits all-time highs most places you're looking at between 20 and 25 percent unemployment rates some places as high as 30 yeah wow it was really bad yeah and then the combo of unemployment and lost savings due to the bank failures led to people unable to make their mortgages, which again affects banks' ability to operate because they're not collecting mortgage payments. They start mm -hmm. defaulting on their mortgages. People start losing their homes. Um, there's a massive mortgage crisis. International trade dries up because everyone's going, well, that market is way too volatile. I'm not trading over there. Right. Yeah, the whole thing is just an absolute mess. Wow. So it's this climate that these prospectors sail into the Seattle port uh, and say, hey, guys, what's going on? Uh, haven't had any news in a while. How have things been? By the way, look at all this gold I have. Wow. <laughs> so, I am excited to hear how this goes. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's such an interesting confluence because it's not only the fact that people are hurting and here's a get rich quick method. It's also that there's a very specific connotation between the value of gold and the value of silver causing the economic crisis at the time, right? Yep. Like there's something meaningful about the value of gold, like more so than it normally would be. The, the, there's, a, there's, a, there's this idea that the only way to get ahead in this economic situation is to have gold currency because that's what all the rich people have. Now that's more of a correlation causation issue than it is anything else. Yep. Um, but it's got extra uh, uh, meaning to it in this situation. Right. So economic times are bad. People are hurting. They feel like they can't get ahead. Housing is a problem. And along comes this, uh, this promise of this extremely high risk, high reward, uh, alternative path towards success and financial stability. Does that sound familiar in any way to today? Oh man, yeah. The more you talk about this whole thing, like with the, even as soon as you said mortgage crisis, I, I, the first thought was, I can't believe that that existed then, and we've seen it in our lifetime. And our parents saw something, at least a dip in their lifetime as well. Yeah. Well, there's nothing new under the sun, but at the same time, you think of something that that old, and and it, you don't expect it to be quite that familiar. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. And I I think um, 
yeah, the the idea of, you know, this news coming out at such a time where you've got, you know, one in four people unemployed and to just say, listen, there's this place. It is just far enough away for you to be unfamiliar with it, but it's just close enough that it's attainable, right? One could hypothetically go there and there is gold everywhere. Look at these very, very rich people who just came back. Yeah. Now, the papers absolutely play uh, a negative role in this whole thing because they're, they're, they are over-exaggerating like crazy. They're saying, you know, we think there's X amount worth of gold there in the Yukon. They're making that up. They don't know that. They're saying, right. oh, there's nuggets the size of eggs just strewn about on the surface. Like, you can just walk in there and pick one up. That's not true at all. Right. But they're they're making up all of this stuff about the Yukon and they're really kind of spurring people along. Right. Why would they do that? I don't know. <laughs> well, there's actually a very there's a really good reason for that. Uh, OK, there's a significant effort made specifically by a newspaper owner out of Seattle um, who wanted to promote the city as a departure point for going to the Yukon. Wow, something so small. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I reckon it's not completely small, but not exactly, you know, grand plans to take over the coast either type thing, you know? Like, he just wanted to bump up it as a departure point. Mm -hmm. That seems like a really superfluous reason to, to potentially ruin a lot of lives. I mean, this is the era of yellow journalism, right? Like, it's, it's, right. it is, uh, you know, you've got William Randolph Hearst doing his his best to uh to you know rile up uh reasons to go to war with cuba uh because he because he likes the idea of american expansion it is uh, it is some of the most shameless manipulation of of the news that's ever existed and man is that ever saying something right um so it's it's in keeping with the time uh it wouldn't be the the worst thing that they've ever done um but yeah it's still pretty self-serving and it's predatory, right? Like let's, let's come out and call it what it is. It's, it's telling yep. people like, listen, this is, this is easy. It's on you for not taking it. Yeah. If you want all of your problems to go away, it's easy. Go North young man. Right? Like it's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of people who are out of work and directionless and, and feeling hopeless. And they're being told that there's this easy path forward and they're going, maybe I ought to give it a shot. Maybe this is maybe this is my ticket to uh, a stable life. Right. The result here is that over a hundred thousand people in the summer of eighteen ninety-seven decide to make the trek to the Yukon. Oh my God! That's a lot of people. That is so many people. Most of them are for, are, are American or recent immigrants to America. Okay. And most of them, by far are from decidedly non-frontier backgrounds. This is not people going, well, I have some mining experience and maybe I'm going to give this a shot. Right. This is just your average people are going to give it a try. It's people who have, you know, worked in uh, retail jobs. It is people who are professionals. This is people who are like, you know, this is lawyers. This is, this is uh, clerks. This is machine uh, workers. It's, it's all sorts of people who are just utterly unequipped for the yeah. far North. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, are they familiar with the climate at this point? Do you oh, think? Absolutely not. They have no idea what they're getting into. 
no Yikes. idea whatsoever. I mean, I you know, I I I know I know a little bit about the the north of Canada. I know enough to know that if you told me, well, we're 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 recording this in August. This is when they're basically uh, departing on this whole migration. Um, if you told me today that I needed to get up to Yukon uh, before uh, the winter set in and then survive the winter, I'm not confident I could do anything close to survive the thing. Yeah. Um, you know, and and that's that's with a little bit of education about the place it is a mystery to these people it's a complete ba yeah. black box and you know the, the exploitation just sort of continues right because there's this industry that springs up uh overnight around um guidebooks uh here's how to survive in the yukon here's what you need to take to the yukon here's how mm -hmm. one pans for gold and it's like they're all published like specifically quickly yeah I, I don't know like I, I looking at these things I get like very like listicle vibes like 17 things you need to know about the far north like it's it's very oh, no. like it's not good info basing your survival off a BuzzFeed article essentially yeah like it's just it's bad info often or or uh, incomplete if it's at least well intentioned but it is it is not about getting people safely to the Yukon it's about selling books yeah because keep in mind all the people who are running these let's call them what they are scams are also suffering the effects of the panic of 1893 yeah and if yep. they can if they can make some money that's great finally things are turning around for them uh yep. the industries are also you know uh outfitters right we will sell you all the stuff that you need in the north you know for the low low price of however much we'll make sure that you have the right pan and the right pickaxe and the right rations to go with um all of that stuff. Yeah. The Canadian government panics when they get word that all these people are going and they more or less immediately uh, dictate that they're not going to let anybody into Yukon without enough supplies to survive for a year. Okay. So, and it's a pretty comprehensive list. Like you need sugar and flour and bacon and you need beans and you need a frying pan and you need a shovel and this many pairs of long underwear and like it's it's an extensive list it's it's actually fairly easy to find if you uh if you look around for it but oh. it's it's good in that it at least sort of starts preparing people for what they might be up against it also means that each person entering the Yukon is taking with them about a ton of stuff. That feels like a pain in the butt to haul around uh, in, you know, any kind of swamp, marsh, forested, or even flat, rocky area, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, it, uh, it sure is. And here's the thing. Where this... Where this gold has been found, so Bonanza Creek, it's a it's a little tributary to the to the Klondike River, which empties into the the Yukon River. It's not near the coast at all. It's it's several hundred kilometers inland into the oh, Yukon. Oh no, it's a long way. And so there's basically there's basically four ways to get to where the gold is, um, and they're all pretty bad. <laughs> like none are none are a good time um so we mentioned we're, we're we're sailing out of seattle you could sail off of any pacific port right um but you're gonna want to land in a in a place called skagway and this is going to turn from a nothing place 
into a city of like 30,000 people basically overnight. Wow. From Skagway, you could take uh, the Chilkoot Pass, which is the traditional route. That's that's the route that people living near uh, the gold claim uh, would normally take to get to the coast. And so this is a this is a traditional path that was also used by uh, Tagish or uh, Tlingit people in the area. It's not an easy walk. This is the this is the route that we're talking about when we said when I said that Skookum Jim carried two hundred and sixty pounds of bacon. Um, he's carrying it across this route. Right. Yeah, that's an incredible nickname too. By the way, I, I kind of miss the days when someone would do something really cool and then they would just follow them around forever. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. <laughs> um, so the Chilku Pass is a difficult hike. Like you can only go on foot. Uh, it's not wide enough to take carts, or uh, you couldn't take a dog sled or something like that. Horses are no go. Uh, and there's like over the course of this this trail there's a 3800 foot elevation ooh it go like we're we're in mountainous territory right like it's yep. it's difficult terrain and what's more we're not just talking about hiking the couple hundred kilometers inland remember that you also have a ton of goods yeah a literal ton of goods and Skagway is technically Alaska. If you look at a map of Alaska, you know how it kind of like there's a, a thin trail or a thin tail that comes south along the Pacific Ocean. Yep. That's mainly yep. there so that Alaska could get as much uh, Pacific like water claim as possible from from Britain. Uh, the British negotiators really really messed that one up. Um, but the quickest way to Yukon is actually through a thin. Uh, band of Alaska. Okay. So you had to get your stuff at least as far as the Canadian border checkpoint and check in with them there that you have your ton of stuff. Right. So that means carrying a ton, literally one ton of, of supplies with you, which you, no one can carry one ton. So you would do like little jogs of like, carry all your stuff this far, go back for some, carry all your stuff, go back for some and sort of relay it all the way along. People were hiring other people to carry the stuff for them. That got extremely expensive very fast. Um, a lot of uh, indigenous to the area made a lot of money really quickly carrying stuff for prospectors sure. who they thought were insane. Um, <laughs> but why not make a buck while you can? Yeah. And yeah, it's just, it's really long and it's really hard. And I, I there's a, there's a, there's a trail there now um, that's, you know, properly like maintained and like groomed and marked and all of that. That is apparently one of the most beautiful hikes in the world. But, uh, you know, you just sh show up in Alaska and you're probably wearing the wrong clothes and somebody's probably tried to swindle you five or six times. And now you're climbing up this muddy path because it's August or September and things are all melted and you're one ton of stuff is a pain and there's a lot of people who never really got further than skagway there's a lot of people who just turned around and went back yeah i b absolutely believe that that was actually going to be one of my questions yeah so you know to 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 just jump ahead slightly of those 100,000 people who made the or who started the journey to the yukon only yep. about 30 to 40,000 actually made it to Dawson City, which is the the city that's going to spring up near the the gold claim. So okay, yeah, a lot uh, just turned back, left, 
maybe tried to sell the goods that they brought with them for fair back, but everybody had those goods anyways, so it didn't really go for much money. Yeah. Um, oh, I forgot to mention this. One of the other kind of scam industries that came out of, of all of this is um, people sailing other people up to Skagway. A lot of the crews were not proper sailors. They just sort of found a boat somewhere and said, sure, I'll take people to Alaska. A lot of like condemned boats were sort of hastily repaired and like never should have been on the ocean and they're still sailing oh, no. people to Alaska. Oh, yeah, there were shipwrecks like crazy. Uh, it was it was really terrible, but it's again seen as like sort of a might as well get mine while the getting is good sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, people are hurting, right? For sure. So that's the that's the Chilkoot Pass. The White Pass is hypothetically considered easier, at least when you get to to Skagway, people are saying it's easier, and the reason for that is it's a slower incline than the Chilkoot Pass, uh, and it doesn't. It doesn't get as high, so it only goes up to 3,200 feet instead of 3,800, um, which is essentially meaningless, honestly, let's be real. But the main difference is you can ride a horse uh, over the White Pass. Okay. On top of all of these people not knowing how to survive in the north and not knowing how to mine and all of this, a lot of them had absolutely no experience with horses. So there was, again, this industry of people sailing horses up to sell in Skagway that were terrible horses. You know, they'd be old or lame or malnourished, you know, horses that they wouldn't normally use for working. And they would sell them to these people at exorbitant prices. Right. Wow. And then people not knowing horses at all would overload the horses, like, horribly overload them because they don't want to go back and forth for their ton of stuff and then just whip them bloody trying to get them over the trail yeah like don't rest them properly don't feed them properly don't water them properly don't brush them down Uh, at the end of the day like all the stuff that you're supposed to do with a horse again i don't really know horses but i know enough to know that i don't know how to use one right like yeah absolutely it's that like little bit of self-awareness that i don't know if it's just missing or if it's just the greed takes over uh it's hard to say that mix of of uh desperation and gullibility is a is a powerful force Mm -hmm. absolutely it is uh the white pass would uh become known as the dead horse trail dang for obvious reasons yeah that's too bad eh wow uh there are stories of people taking that pass and just like constant bleached horse bones along the side of it um it was it was just a uh, yeah just a massacre um real bad so yeah the the whole idea of the white pass was that they had actually begun cutting a a telegraph route that way so you know they'll just kind of clear trees to to one side or the other so they can put up telegraph poles but that cutting was only maybe the first five or six miles and after that it was no easier really than the than the Chilkoot, other than maybe a little bit wider. Wow, eh? So you start off pr- pretty hopeful, I would imagine, then. Yeah, and I think that would be a lot of the source of the rumors that it's so much easier. Although, um, right. you know, there was, a, there was a guy who was up there for uh, Harper's Magazine who, uh, he ended up taking the White Pass, um, but he, he kind of noted at the time in a journal that, you know, if the White pass is so much easier then why is the chilkoot pass the traditional one yeah and that's a 
That's a question that I don't think enough people were asking. Yep, seriously. It's a good question. A couple thousand people tried what was known as the All Canada route. This was to avoid having to take the sea or to go through American territory, pay American customs, all of that stuff. Um, they headed north from Edmonton. That's over 2,000 kilometers in completely undeveloped interior subarctic. Ooh. Uh, only about a third of them actually made it. Took about eight, 18 months to get there. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was a bad idea. <laughs> it's just a bad idea. <laughs> but yeah, like it, it was, uh, you know, the, the guys who came through there, they were not, they were not okay. It was, uh, <laughs> were not okay. it was a traumatizing experience for, for yeah. those who survived as well. It was, it was a really difficult way to go. And then the fourth option is what was known as the all water route. Uh, technically, it's possible to sail up the Yukon River from the Alaskan coast, um, but this is like this is very very far north. Like the Yukon River empties out sort of as far west as you can get in Alaska, like uh, north of the Aleutian Islands. Okay. So it's a oh, it's a little over seventy six hundred kilometers to sail from you know Seattle up through up through the Pacific and then down the, the Yukon River. It would cost each person about $1,000, so it was also known as the rich man's route. And the idea is that it's going to save you the trouble of, of going over these, these difficult passes. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it kind of discounts the fact that it's a really long way, and if you don't get all the way up the Yukon River before winter, the Yukon River freezes. Ooh. And ice and boats do not go together well. No, they don't. You can't buy your way out of that one, I don't think. No. So people would be stuck for the entire winter um, if they were lucky. And if they were not, the ice would uh, capsize and, and crush their, their boats. Oh, my God. Even if they make it off the river, then they have no supplies likely. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it's not easy to get to this gold. This is not a nice trek out to California, right? Like there's not it's 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 not a simple thing that these people are undertaking and it's not completely mm -hmm. blind like people understand that this is uh harsh wilderness it's just as i said earlier that that combination with desperation makes so many people willing to give it a try that it it's a it's a significant undertaking mm -hmm. when these people got there the you know the 30 to 40,000 people that actually make it all the way to Dawson, which is uh, Dawson city is founded in sort of like late eight or sorry, early 1897, like January, 1897. It's a bunch of locals who go, well, I didn't really stake much of a claim, but there's going to be a need for something here. So they basically took it upon themselves to stake out uh, a city and start selling lots to people as though they owned the lots, um, which is a good way to make money. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding, eh? Zero investment, one hundred percent return. That's excellent. Well, and it worked. Like it was, it was a, it, it became a functioning city. Dawson City still exists to this day. Um, so you know, when these thirty to forty thousand people get there, there is a Dawson City for them to reach. Um, maybe fifteen thousand of them actually try mining. Um, there's other ways that people kind of get sidelined. Sometimes people get there, and uh, you know, the first winter. 
uh, because they all they all left in like August, September of of 1897, right? They get there yep. just in time to get snowed in for the winter of Perfect. 1897 to 1898, and it is uh, just the worst experience. It's really really terrible. Yep. Um, a lot of them after that first winter don't even try mining; they just head back out. Uh, a lot of them die during that winter. Oh. Um, it, it is it is exceptionally difficult. Um, yeah, there's, there's nothing like being stuck somewhere where the sun doesn't rise for weeks on end. Uh, there are no fresh vegetables. So scurvy sets in, um, you're probably alone. Uh, or if you're with somebody, you're probably driving each other crazy. Supplies might be scarce. Uh, there's really not much to do other than drink. It's just, it's miserable. Uh, yeah, it's not uh, exactly the dream vacation that papers in Seattle promised, is it? Not really. Not really. So maybe 15,000 people end up actually trying to mine. And by the time they get going in either like the late fall of 1897 or in the spring thaw of 1898, all the best claims are done, right? Those old timers have already got all the best stuff. So you kind of branch out, you try smaller creeks that might feed into one that you know that works. If it mm -hmm. hasn't already been claimed, uh, some people would just stake random spots of, of land and hope that if they went far enough down and hit bedrock, they might find something. There wasn't a lot of options there. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned that it's considerably more concentrated than for say the California gold rush. So when you get even a fraction of that amount of people, going to a super a concentrated area, right? It's just like you said, it's going to get staked up so quickly. Exactly. Only about 4,000 people ever end up striking gold in the Yukon. Okay. Uh, only maybe a couple hundred of those could be described as becoming rich. Um, wow. The average payout I saw was $5. Oh man. That's too bad. It's rough. But it's about the the journeys, about the friends we made along the way, right, guys? <laughs> about that. <laughs> uh, there's this story you'll sometimes hear about the Yukon Gold Rush that it was relatively well ordered and safe and crime free, things like that. Mm -hmm. Part of that goes back to. Uh, old miners code stuff that we talked about at the beginning, you know, how to figure out how to work yep. together. But like part of that code that we didn't really talk about is that when there's a, any sort of a dispute, they would just call together as many miners as they could. And essentially I suppose hold court in a way, each person in the dispute would be able to say their piece. And then the rest of the miners would all vote on who they agreed with. And that was binding. Because there was no law, really. I mean, right. you know, Yukon had been split off as a distinct uh, zone in the Northwest Territories in 1895. Okay. Um, but it's still basically administered from Ottawa, right? Like, it's not, there's no local government or anything. Interesting. Yeah, it's, that's actually, again, it's kind of a hard concept to wrap your head around uh, in today's world, at least in Canada, I should say. Yeah, for that sure. You, you may have these these areas where there's so many people and the government's like, yeah, yeah, they'll be fine, guys. Don't worry about it. Oh, for sure. But the, the other side of that, too, is that like some of these disputes are things like, oh, somebody stole food. And that's, 
I mean, that'll just get you shot. Right? Yeah. Because it's life, life and death. Like, if you have somebody stealing your food, that means you're going to die now. Yeah. Because your food is gone. So it's very, very harsh. So disputes are not handled in, like, there's there's no wisdom of Solomon here, right? Like, there's no, like, finding a nice middle path. Like, it's pretty direct and it's pretty harsh. And you're putting a lot of desperate people into that situation. So for the first little while, a lot of this stuff is just kind of handled one-on-one. -on -one. There, there are a lot of uh, uh, fights. There are shootings. There are all sorts of uh, pretty brutal frontier justice type things happening. It's, it's rough. In 1897, uh, there's like the decision to send... Uh, Northwest Mounted Police up to Yukon to start administering the the territory a little bit more directly. Uh, but okay. there's there's a couple dozen officers go up, led by uh, Sam Steele. You've probably heard that name at one point. He's one of the most famous Mounties. Yeah. Um, to administer ju uh, justice in the in the area, and there's this there's this sort of this idea that once the Northwest Mounted Police show up, that uh, that things really settle down. And that's somewhat true. I mean, they can only investigate so much. Mm -hmm. Sometimes things happen out in the wild that uh, that never get reported back. And, yeah. uh, you know, so they mostly focus on keeping law and order in, in larger centers. So things like Dawson City, which, by the way, as much as it's, you know, a town of like 15,000, like it's it's large, it's just basically wooden structures built on bog. Like it's kind of nasty. And it's a lot of people who are, you know, when they find out that there's no gold left, are trying to figure out other ways to survive, right? So there's a significant vice industry, for example, a lot of saloons, a lot of gambling. Um, there are uh, brothels, uh, like 90% of the people in, in Yukon are, are men, but uh, yep. the, the women who are there are usually either married to a prospector who they've, they've followed up to mine or, you know, other than a few other outliers uh, working in some uh, proximity to the to the sex industry. Okay. You know, there, there are actually some pretty successful uh, female business owners. Like it's not it's not kind of a guarantee that it's one of the one or the other. Uh, a woman named uh, Belinda Mulrooney owns uh, hotels, uh, a bunch okay. of different hotels, both in Dawson City and closer to uh, the actual mining sites. And you know, it's it's weird. The, the 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 economics of everything get really, really tilted, especially after everyone survives that first winter. The first winter they're really worried about. The the locals figure there's probably about a thousand too many people uh for everybody to survive the winter. They're worried about running out of food and they're worried yep. about what happens to people when the food runs out. Yep. So they try and send people back, but when they can't they uh, basically have everyone pool all of their supplies and start rationing for the winter, and it's a uh, it's a pretty near thing. People have right. uh, people have gone down to skin and bones by the time the thaw comes. Ooh, that sounds extremely harsh. Yeah, it, it is. It is absolutely extremely harsh. It's it's very very difficult, and it's it's this weird situation where you have men who today would be millionaires by the standards of the gold that they're carrying okay. and they couldn't buy a bag of flour to save their life with it bonkers 
So all of the economy, like the whole economy gets really out of whack. Like you get this stuff where, so these, these hotels that uh, are owned by uh, Mulrooney, she's charging $12 a night for a hotel room, which remember our multiply by 30 rule for value. This is a pretty basic wooden structure that just has a bed that's dry essentially and it's the equivalent of spending $360 a night on a hotel room. Wow. And guys are paying it because they're sick of sleeping in tents and getting eaten by fleas and, and you know, people are losing limbs to gangrene and, and trench foot and all of this stuff. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's horrendous. Um, so, yeah, the luxury stuff is, is out of control, but, like, the staples are really hard to come by. And it's just exacerbated by the wealth because stuff that would normally get driven up to a certain level where nobody can afford it is driven to a point where only a small percentage of people can afford it because of all the gold and everybody else is out of luck. Yeah. It's really, it really, really warps things. Mm -hmm. Supplying the city is inconsistent. Even after the thaw, they start getting supply ships and, and the best merchants out there are able to figure things out. But, you know, you're going to have shortages from time to time. All of a sudden, there's just going to be no salt in the entire city. Uh, and that's just the way it is. Yeah. So it's, again, uh, some of the topics we've, like some of the topics you've talked about so far, it's sort of difficult to imagine growing up in not like a, like a wealthy family or anything, but growing up in like a relatively stable economy, you know, surrounded by grocery stores, et cetera. Um, it's interesting to think about how so much of that, you know, we take for granted and, and in certain areas, certain times of the world, even today, obviously, but you think about back then when these towns, you know, if, oh, we didn't get the salt shipment, I could imagine there'd be some anxiety and some stress that comes with that as well. And thinking, well, you know, what does it take to get the next supply through? How long is that going to take, et cetera? And what's next sort of thing? What, what else could we have shortages in? Yeah, absolutely. It's extremely stressful. And, you know, I mean, food insecurity in the in the Canadian North is, is still very much a thing today, let alone trying to figure all this stuff out more than 100 years ago, right? Like, it's just, if it's not there, it's just kind of not there, you know? So anyway, like these, we, we, we talked a little before about, you know, the, the Northwest Mounted Police showing up and, and crime becoming relatively low under them. That's sort of only half true it is true if you were a prospector you probably didn't experience much crime okay. anytime the uh the northwest mounted police were dealing with uh crime between two miners so if it's a, a territory dispute or a theft or whatever they were pretty quick to get that resolved and they gained a, a reputation relatively quickly for that for that like there was this uh this saying that would go around that you could fall asleep in Dawson City at the bar with your with your bag of gold there and it would be there when you woke up. It was that oh, safe, okay. which, you know, is, is a little bit of an exaggeration, but, you know, gets gets the sentiment across and that's mm -hmm. fine. But, um, you know, crime against indigenous people went largely yeah. unpunished. Um, lynchings were fairly common. Uh, and like with the California gold rush, although at a much smaller scale, just because there's simply less people. As people branched out trying to prospect more and more places, they are running more and more into 
areas that would traditionally be used for fishing or for hunting, uh, causing tension between indigenous people and prospectors. And, you know, this would result in, in uh, conflict and violence and crime. Uh, it would almost always be resolved on the on the side of European prospectors. Yeah, I wondered if if uh, you were going to go into this, and uh, yeah, I'm glad you are. It's it's not surprising, but it's still as uh, shocking and uncomfortable to hear. You know, it's too bad. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and I mean, you, yeah, we're we're talking about straight up lynchings at a certain point where where you know yeah. indigenous people are essentially strung up for being indigenous. That yeah. sort of starts going away under the Northwest Mounted Police, at least as openly and as publicly. But what does start coming into play is, is uh, you know, public executions by the Northwest Mounted Police, um, which generally tended to, uh, you know, disproportionately be levied against Indigenous people. So it's kind of like uh, how much of a an improvement is, uh, is this or is it just a legitimization of a, an already existing phenomenon, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, likewise, crime against women went largely unreported. It was just sort of not investigated in the same way, uh, and it was it was quite common. It's it's this strange thing that starts happening where uh, the, these men are are up there in a in a situation where again uh, nine out of ten people are are men, and uh, they're visiting brothels. Uh, they're getting to know. Uh, women who would work as dancers uh, in saloons, things like that. And on one hand, they would begin to feel possessive, jealous. On the other hand, they need to go back and get gold. Um, so they're kind of pulled in two, diff uh, two directions. It was really, really common for uh, prospectors to start feeling jealous uh, of these women when they realized that they had other clients and uh, decide that they would... Uh, rather well essentially they'd rather kill them than uh, than share them and you know Yikes. i don't want to make it sound as though this is like an everyday occurrence but it wasn't a rare occurrence either right um and it wasn't really looked into um the steel kind of saw the 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 sex industry in in dawson city as a uh, a necessity i suppose he wasn't necessarily against it but he, he had a very utilitarian view of it in terms of like a, an outlet for these men. It was important that they had this uh, release valve kind of thing and not necessarily for the, uh, the sake of the safety of these women who were working there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate. And not, again, it's uncomfortable to hear about, but it's again, it's not surprising, is it? No. In fact, uh, sex work was uh, selectively enforced. They would uh, pick a set number of women every month uh, to ticket and use those proceeds to fund the hospital. So it was essentially arbitrary. There was a quota system. Uh, after they had gotten enough to pay for the hospital that month, they would uh, they would leave them be. Okay. Wow. That's a system. Yep. Sure is. Uh, scams were rampant, especially against newcomers, especially when you get into the summer of 1898. They've already kind of blown through all of the the marks from that first rush. Anybody who's still coming up is seen as uh, especially gullible by locals. Okay. And so you would come into Skagway and somebody would tell you, ah, you know, oh, I don't know. You got to watch out for scammers, but I can tell you the the real best way to get up. And, and you know, okay. they would redirect you somewhere that you'd be robbed. Or uh, there was one scam I thought I 
I mean, it's, it's terrible, but I also found it kind of funny. Somebody will come up to you and say, Oh, you got, you got outfitted from one of those companies down south. They don't know what it's like living up here. Let me take you to one of the local guys. They'll get you set up proper. And you go into the store and they'd say, Oh, well, you need this, this, and this. Um, it's pretty expensive, but I'll tell you what, if you give me, uh, all of your gear that you brought up with you, we'll get you outfitted and we'll just pay you know, uh, we'll just figure out the difference basically. So you end up paying, you know, an extra, you know, maybe 10% or 15% of what they were actually asking for the stuff. And you'd think, man, I, I dodged a bullet. Now I've got the real deal. And then the next, uh, they take all of your stuff, they'd send you off. And then when the next mark came in, uh, they would sell that stuff to this person as being the real deal, take their 10 or 15%, take their stuff. And they would just kind of cycle through uh, a couple people's worth of gear uh, selling it off to the next person as, as genuine. And, uh, yeah, they would never know a little profit from it. It's uh, it's an innovative actually. It's quite clever. It is clever. It is clever. Um, but yeah, it's, it's as, as it turns back into summer and people are, are leaving the, the gold fields, then they're also trying to scam them out of, out of their gold or hold them up for their gold. And it's, it's, it's really quite, a dangerous place to be despite that law and order sort of sentiment. It might not be that you're necessarily directly held up for your, your goods. It might not be that you're, you're realizing you're necessarily a victim of theft, but you're absolutely going to get hustled if you go into that casino, like a hundred percent for sure. Right. So in 1898, they finished this, the telegraph line, uh, from Skagway to Dawson city. And, we're going to start to get more uh, immediate feedback, just what life is like in Dawson City. Um, because up till now, it's kind of still been rumor, right? Like it's been speculative. It's been, well, people are coming back rich, but I also heard it's dangerous. And is it really worth it? And the, yeah. the newspapers have driven all of this along. But a couple of things are going to happen, you know, late 1898, early 1899 that are, are kind of going to put an end to this whole rush. So the first thing that happens is those 1898 suckers, apparently, uh, essentially, uh, that we talked about, almost universally fail to find any sort of productive claim. Okay. Anything that wasn't caught in the initial 1896 find was picked over in the 1897 rush. Right. So all of these guys get up to Dawson City. They have no gold. They have uh, a bunch of supplies that are essentially worthless in Dawson City because everybody's got the same. And really all they can do is either go home, which they might not actually have the money to make the journey back, you know, pay mm-hmm. somebody to lug all this stuff, or they can try and find labor until they can figure something out to hopefully find a claim. And right. these are all really hopeful people. They're not all inclined to necessarily just give up because they're there. And so that ends up really depressing the labor market because there's so many people up there without their own claim that if you do have a productive claim, the amount that you would have to pay somebody else to help you work it goes down substantially in 1898. Right. Claims that are paying more have also started bringing in more and more elaborate operations. So there's something called hydraulic mining where they would uh, basically use like a, a big fire hose essentially to um, spray down all the dirt on hill tops 
um, okay. and then use those sluice boxes that we talked about to collect yep. all that runoff and just essentially automatically mine that. Um, but you do need access to water. You do need to uh, have the hydraulic mining equipment, which is quite expensive and difficult to operate. And it's going to take a few people and it's going to take a bunch of money. Yeah. You also get into people mining with steam. So rather than burning their way down with just wood fires, there are machines that come in and they're, they're running like a, a boiler and they mm -hmm. use these hoses to force steam down into the ground to melt it more quickly. Um, okay. This goes faster, but it's also more unstable than the traditional burning method. So you have these expensive machines, the ground becomes less stable, more accidents happen. But again, it's still that like initial outlay. It's the, uh, the expensive machinery. It's the number of people needed to work it. Um, mm -hmm. And what you start seeing is like any claims that didn't really pay off all that well, people are willing to sell at a premium to these uh, outfits who are willing to take more of a risk. It stops being an individualized thing. Right, right. And um, sorry if I'm jumping ahead here. How, you know, when you bring the, this equipment in, you need these people to operate, et cetera. How beneficial is it by the time they're able to get these operations up and going? Um, initially it's, it's not necessarily paying off the way they would like, like some of them do strike it rich, but not a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, where that really becomes affordable is in 1900 where they, when they finish a, a rail line from Skagway to, um, to Dawson city. But by that point, the rush is essentially over in right. like our understanding of it. Like at that point it turns to industrial mining. Um, that's, that's no longer really a, a gold rush, technically speaking. Right. Because really what's missing there is that sense of like anyone could go and with a little hard work and luck and determination become very, very rich. Like that's yeah. that's no longer yeah. the case. You need you need capital. You need investors. You need a, a crew, all of that stuff. And if you don't have that stuff, it's now beyond your reach. Right. Yeah. OK. That, that's a pretty good distinction, actually. Yeah. So. There's a couple of things that happen. I, I mentioned the 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 falling uh, wages. There's also the fact that a war breaks out between the U.S. and uh, Spain over Cuba. Uh, the U.S. press is wrapped up in this, and they basically stop paying any attention to the Yukon. Okay. And this has a pretty marked effect on dropping the popularity of it. It gets to the point where going to the Yukon is almost like a bit of a joke. Like it's kind of a like it's a it's it's seen as more of a suckers thing almost by the time you get right. to the end of 1898 just because so many bad stories have come out especially with the new telegraph uh lines mm -hmm. coming back right mm -hmm. in august of 1898 so just as that like final round of suckers get there a little bit of a little bit of gold is found near nome alaska so further inland yet but on the u.s side oh. and a lot of the U.S. prospectors had kind of chafed at doing business in Canada. They didn't like it. They, there was a little bit of, hmm, there was some misunderstanding of, uh, of the, the rules of international borders happening there. Okay. They, they, well, they didn't like that they had to pay a, a duty on bringing all that stuff into Canada. And they didn't like that the Canadian government took, you know, between 10 and 15% of the, uh, of the value of any gold mine as just a, a flat tax, right? Um, mm -hmm. They didn't like that uh, you could only your claim was only free for a year, 
And if you wanted to stay uh, stay on the claim any longer than that, you had to pay a yearly uh, license to to re-up on it. And uh, they saw this all as they, they saw this all as really oppressive, and the you know Canadian government saw it as you know a, a reasonable way to to you know make some money off of uh, resources that it saw itself as controlling. Yeah, absolutely. So you know the 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 Russian in uh, in Nome pulled enough people away that it was a little bit more you know. Uh, friendly to all the American prospectors, which so many of them were, right? And in in 1898, more than 2,500 people uh, set off for for Nome, hoping to strike it rich there. Okay. It doesn't end up being as as nearly as big as the Klondike Rush, but some people make some money, you know. Mm -hmm. Then in uh, May of 1899, kind of the worst possible thing happens in Dawson City. Uh, for a uh, for a city that's uh, built on a bog and made of wood, uh, fire breaks out. Oh no! It's real bad. If it, it spreads very very quickly, it's May, so the river hasn't completely melted yet, and that's their main source of water. So they have like a fire engine, like a brand new, like it's it's works on steam and pumps water kind of thing, but there's yep. still ice. Um, right. so they start hacking holes in, in, in the ice to get to the river, but they're getting like kind of more muddy silt than they are water. And there's like, at the same time, there's actually a strike by the, the, the firemen in, in the city over, over poor wages. Wow. Um, and that's not like an issue in terms of like, did they help with the fire? It's an issue in terms of the maintenance. See, they should have been keeping the boiler on the fire pump warm at all times and they hadn't been and it just takes a long time to get warmed up it was so cold and this fire is spreading quickly very quickly the the buildings are all packed really close together Mm -hmm. so there's all these people who are like rushing into homes trying to pull out whatever is valuable and it's not necessarily what you would think it is it's things like plate glass window which is really hard to carry into the yukon interior right or or sentimental items obviously gold but i mean gold will survive a fire and everybody has a lot of it or none at all and kind of nowhere in between um you know the the when they finally get the the engine going the 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 hoses are all made of leather right Mm -hmm. uh stitched together and the water is so cold coming out of the river that because the hoses hadn't been kept warm properly either the the water freezes the hoses from the inside and they burst their seams oh my god so at that point it's basically like buckets from the river that's frozen over uh steel shows up on the scene uh starts personally arresting anyone who doesn't help with the fire kind of gets things organized and the decision is made that we basically need what do you call it a break, uh, a fire break. And so they figure out which way the, the fire is burning, grab dynamite and proactively blow up about 15 buildings to keep it from hopping. Okay. And how did that work out? I mean, it stopped the fire. Okay. More or less. I mean, it, it contained the fire, at least I should say. Uh, right. 110 buildings are lost in this fire. That's bonkers. Do you have a total of how many there are total? Oh, I don't have a total. No, uh, it was a significant amount of the city, though. Like we're we're talking yeah. most of the city. Okay, that's kind of what I pictured in my head. Yeah, it's it's real bad. 
Um, the bank burned. Oh, lovely. The safe was not uh, fireproof. Oh, no. So that means not only did they lose a lot of money, they also lost any papers that were stored in the bank's vaults, which would include claim information. Okay, so this is extremely bad for, on many layers. Total losses are over $4 million in that time uh, wow. assessment. Yeah, so like, be best case we're talking, you know, $120 million, depending on how we want to assess value. Yeah, yeah. It's, that is super depressing. It's really bad. I, I think a lot of people see that as the real nail in the coffin. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Dawson starts rebuilding almost immediately as like almost a pastiche of itself. Like they start okay. building stuff where that, that's oriented almost more towards like tourists who want to come and see the authentic Klondike experience. Right. Okay. Um, people still live there, but like the population starts dropping extraordinarily mm -hmm. quickly they're they're at about seventeen thousand in 1899 mm -hmm. by 1902 they're down to less than five thousand people wow yeah they all they all clear out um understandable oh yeah sure it's over the the, yeah. the dream is done at that point you know what what is there to go back to right mm -hmm. so where does that leave us what, what is what is the what is the point of all this i guess is the is the real question at this point right yeah so i mean like i said the average prospector found about five dollars worth of gold so most people lost more money than they than they gained yep you know there was this this concept of of mining the miners so all the people who owned saloons and and uh brothels and uh dry goods stores and whatever else this idea that you know these guys would show up with tons of gold nothing else and all of a sudden they're going to pay exorbitant sums for uh for anything that you could sell them uh mm -hmm. i remember seeing that uh, the the one guy the first boat through the winter or, or in the spring of of uh 1898 so after that first really bad winter the first boat through was selling eggs at seven dollars a dozen oh wow and they paid it and he he doubled his price by the next day so 14 dollars oh a dozen yeah like it's just this completely upside down mm -hmm. valuation right so you know the, the the people who were in those sort of ancillary industries um there's there's a saying out there that you know in a gold rush sell shovels um, this idea of like, look, what's really, right. look, what's really going to be like reliable in a, in a volatile situation. Right. Yeah. Most of those people just wrote it for too long and, and, you know, made a lot of money. And then as people left, lost a lot of money because they couldn't sustain the prices they had been charging. They didn't have the customer base they had before and right. sort of ended up back where they started. Um, you know, mm -hmm. didn't, didn't really walk away with with massive fortunes. There's a few uh, big fortunes that were made in mining, but they're honestly really rare. Most of the people who made money also ended up spending it all. Right. One, uh, like one of the biggest ones, uh, I don't know any that anyone outside of Canada would know this name, but like the, the Pantages uh, family, like all the theaters, they made their fortune in the Klondike gold rush. 
Okay. Yeah. Well, that's kind of cool. Yeah. So, I mean, but it's, it's rare. Like, it's not like we have any yeah. like Vanderbilts or any like, you know, like there, there's no, uh, Carnegie's or anything like that out of this yeah. rush. Right. Like we don't have any big, like we have a, f- a handful of, of lasting fortunes, but nothing, nothing massive. Mm-hmm. I already mentioned about Dawson, uh, declining in population. Same thing happens to Skagway, right? goes from okay. 30,000 in 1898 to about 3000 in 1900. So 10%, uh, just two mm-hmm. years later. Mm-hmm. That's devastating. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a, it was a real flash in the pan. Indigenous populations were hit really hard by the whole thing. Uh, initially yeah. they got some, some decent wages out of things like carting supplies and, and acting as guides or even, even some labor. But, uh, you know, the influx brings disease just like it did in California. It, uh, it brings, uh, environmental damage. Um, we didn't talk about it much, but a lot of miners would use uh, mercury to help separate gold from the silt and that just gets into the water and into the food supply yeah um you know uh and it also brings you know the northwest mounted police and the canadian government yeah uh into a place that was was largely left alone uh all of this time you know canadian policy towards the north shifts because of all of this uh all of a sudden it's not just about settlement it's about resource extraction uh, as well. And as more or less a direct result, you see a second round of those numbered treaties. Uh, treaties 8 through 11 are negotiated between 1899 and 1921, and it focuses on northern land. So like the, the northern reaches of the prairie provinces, northern Ontario, uh, into okay. uh, the Northwest Territories now. Uh, all with this eye towards maybe there's going to be something there that we'll be able to extract. And those ter- th- those treaties in particular are fairly specific about the uh, resource extraction rights that the treaties give to the government of Canada. They want to make right. sure that it's uh, in no uncertain terms. Yep. Despite that, you know, Yukon was incorporated as a territory in, in 1898 with the arrival of Northwest Mounted Police. Uh, Yukon didn't see any treaties with indigenous people until beginning in 1993. Wow. Yeah. How, how did that, like, I apologize if that's not an easy question to answer, but how did that even happen? Uh, I'm trying to think of a non, like, like a non flippant way to answer that. Um, yeah. Because it's easy to feel real bitter about it, to be honest with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But like the first thing that comes to mind, honestly, is like, well, who's going to stop them? Yeah. Okay. So it's exactly what what I'm thinking. Then they they just just, yeah they just operate the territory as as unceded land. They have no treaty with the people there, and yet they operate uh, the treaty the the territory of Yukon uh, as a a part of of uh, Canadian Crown land and continue to extract resources from it with uh impunity um just sort of assert ownership yeah yeah that's uh that's heartbreaking and that's it's absolutely it's just you know tough to hear we 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 take so many things for granted in our country and certainly we live in a in a country that is fantastic for many reasons but then as soon as you start looking into these things that to, to be fair i don't feel like i was necessarily taught or, or talked about around me growing up. Um, 
but then you start to hear about them and you hear like it's been going on for so much longer than you can even really think about uh, in logistical terms based on, you know, your own age and your life. And you think, wow, this has been going on, you know, four times as old as I am. Like, how is this even possible? And we act like that type of thing could never happen. Sorry for ranting. No, but, not uh, at all. Yeah, it's, it's just bananas to think about. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. Yeah, and, and it is, it is. I don't, there, there has been a shift uh, recently in, in some of this stuff becoming a little bit more talked about, but it's slow and it's, it's, it's kind of painful and, and mm-hmm. it, it needs to be better understood because I, I think for me, the thing that always gets me is the, um, uh, how intentional it all is. Like, it's not like we accidentally backed into these situations. There are, uh, policies in place and there are people who, uh, arranged all of this stuff and it's not, it's not just accidental. It's, it's often very, very deliberate and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to, to kind of conceive of a, a place that works very well for us being, um, that harmful to others at the same time. And, and those two things yeah. being, uh, true at the same time. Yeah, that's a fantastic way to, to put it, right? Because my perspective of all these things that feel so unfathomable are going to, that perspective is, of course, that lens is going to be completely different for someone who's like, I know it sounds unfathomable to you, but to me, it's like very much just what I know or, or the family I came from, et cetera, based on my heritage. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot to think about. Yeah. Well, why don't we end on a bit more of a positive note then? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, we can do that. <laughs> let, let's check in with our let's check in with our uh, our three original discoverers of the gold and how they all yeah. fare. So George Carmack, um, not great, uh, not terribly happy with George. He okay. uh, ended up moving back down to California with a pretty size. That's where he was from, California. He moved mm-hmm. down with a pretty sizable fortune, um, but he. You know his 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 marriage with his uh, his wife. He, he called her Kate, um, but uh, his his marriage was really fraught. Um, he didn't originally uh, intend to marry her. Uh, her her taggish name is is Shotclaw, but um, he he married a, a sister, I believe, who who ended up dying. And in taggish culture. Um, if you've married into a family and someone dies, you know, someone else kind of steps in, uh, in a certain way. Um, okay. so he had never, he had never really intended to marry her. And I think the the strain of, of working in the North all of those years, uh, it, it, it put a, a significant strain on their personal relationship. And, um, he, he really couldn't stand to be around her at a certain point. So, okay. um, they ended up, uh, divorcing, uh, but he sort of left her down in, in, uh, California. Like he brought this happened after they, they moved to California. And, uh, so, uh, Shakla ended up depending on Jim to a certain extent for the rest of her life. Okay. Um, George Carmack, uh, retired comfortably. He always maintained that he was the first one to discover the gold, even though we know that it was Jim. Mm-hmm. Their uh, their nephew Dawson Charlie um, was yep. also very very uh, rich, but it was a little too much for him to uh, handle. He uh, basically spent himself into a into an alcohol related death. There was some sort of a, a bridge accident, I believe, um, and, and died okay. fa- fairly early. But Jim, uh, his, his real name is Keish. He kept pros- prospecting up until his death in 1916, but he made a lot of money off of that first claim. Like a lot of it. And unlike a lot of other people, 
in this story. He didn't spend it all. He actually tucked it away uh, fairly responsibly. And that makes him a, a very singular person. You know, he had, he had already done one historically notable thing. This is another. Um, retaining retaining wealth after the Klondike Gold Rush. And uh, yeah, he set up a foundation uh, with that money in his home community, which uh, is actually, it's still in place uh, today. It runs out of uh, Whitehorse in Yukon. And the Skookum Gym Center helps uh, support mainly taggish youth, but at-risk indigenous youth in Canada's north provides uh, employment advice, provides uh, reproductive health services, um, a lot of really critical uh, services to the community. And that that foundation still exists to this day. That money is still doing good uh, to this day in the North. And uh, I I think that's, um, I I couldn't come up with a better place to end this story. It's, It's nice to see at least one good thing come out of all of this. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's beautiful. And uh, I hope, you know, I imagine, imagine if he could have ever known, you know, just how far that would go. That's, that's very impressive. Yeah. That's the type of person we need a, a, you know, a really in-depth documentary about or something. Yeah. Or a cool, cool movie made in his honor. Yeah. He was a, he was an interesting guy. Yeah. I don't know. The whole thing is, I I don't often go as as in-depth on individuals like this, but it's, it's weird how much the story of, like the discovery of this gold just feels like a uh, an analogy for the wider experience of the Canadian North and resource extraction, uh, you know, exploitation of, of indigenous knowledge. And like, there's a lot of like parallels that happen there. Right. Yeah. Um, there's this, there's this saying I've heard around that Canada is really just three mining companies in a trench coat. And, you know, there's a lot of our, history of expansion and our relations with indigenous people and things like that, that really do go back to resource extraction and, and not just uh, mining gold, although that's been a big part of it, you know, before that with the fur trade, uh, it's, it's really been an extractive relationship from the beginning. And to see that, that reflected in, you know, Carmack insisting he was the real discoverer, even though we know it was Jim or, you know, Henderson missing out on things because he refused to communicate with somebody who is indigenous. Like there's, there's a lot of stuff in there that just feels very, it feels bigger than just that one story. Like in the, like it's that whole thing about in, in the specific lies, the universal, right? Excellently put or uh, referenced, I guess. Yeah. Oh, that wasn't me. I'm trying to remember who it was that said that. I'll add <laughs> yeah. it later. But like James Joyce or something. I don't know. Um, in, in any case, it doesn't. It doesn't much matter. But like it, it is. It is really fascinating to me that that uh, um, the, those those parallels. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad to know there's literally any good that came out of it whatsoever. But in any case, yeah. that's that's the Klondike Gold Rush. It's a little bit more interesting than you know Charlie Chaplin eating a boot, but turns out that's actually not that far off either. Uh, any uh, final impressions? Any last questions? What did you think? Did you? Uh, how, how did your first episode go? Oh no, it uh, feels like it went pretty fast, actually. To be perfectly honest, I'm looking at the clock right now, and uh, you know it was a very interesting story and excellently told. And I think that. Uh, you know, uh, for me and in, in all the learning I've been doing, especially the past few years around uh, Canada's indigenous relation, 
relationships, which are, you know, as you've said, are strained at best, and rightfully so. Um, it's I think it's really poignant and, and actually quite powerful. I, I didn't realize it would uh, the story of the Klondike rush would have so many, like you said, parallels to what's happening today. Uh, so very timely. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Yeah, for sure. How much does this seem like Bitcoin, man? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to spend time on this, but like the whole and, and I mean, I, I don't mean in terms of like, I, I don't want to I don't want to get myself into into anything here but like in terms of this idea of somebody saying look things are bad right now here's an alternate path to security it's very high risk but some people will make out okay and it's not just mm -hmm. it's not just bitcoin i mean it, we could talk about uh pyramid schemes or mlm stuff like there's always there's always paths that are offered to people that are sure. very lucrative and and very dangerous right and yeah. I don't know. Like, I think the main thing that I would I would suggest from from any parallels to be found there is that, man, if if the Klondike Gold Rush was happening today, like you know, it would still go down the exact same way. Like, I have <laughs> yeah. I have no doubt in my mind there would still be a hundred thousand people, just you know, ill-equipped, not understanding the ramifications, on the first boat up to the Alaskan coast waiting to waiting to do what they can. And, and it's not like, it's just, that's human nature, right? Like, yeah, yeah it's, it's going to be tough, but maybe I'll be the lucky one. So anyway, that's, yeah. uh, that's all I have for the Klondike. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad I finally got you on the show. So mm -hmm. thanks so much for joining me. I, I really appreciate you having, having you here. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a, it was a real pleasure. We'll have to do sure. it again Thank soon. You. Agreed. From start to finish, the Klondike Gold Rush lasted about 1,000 days. In that period, the desperation of hard times and the promise of a quick payout brought tens of thousands of people to a land that they weren't prepared for, and the vast majority were not equal to the task. Massive fortunes were won, but most left empty-handed if they survived at all. The rush was ecologically devastating and influenced the Canadian government to renew focus on mining and resource extraction, a direction that continues to this day, when over 75% of the world's mining companies are headquartered in Canada. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, for some reason I decided to pronounce Johannesburg the Dutch way, despite knowing that the preferred pronunciation is the English way. That's what happens sometimes when you're doing these things live, uh, so focused on holding everything together that I mispronounced a major international city's name. To be honest, I almost did it again uh, doing this correction. Uh, but that correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, hi101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blusky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.